Welcome. My name is Dr. Jonathan Vorse, and thank you for downloading our podcast today on Working the Word. Make sure you hit that subscribe button to receive new podcasts every week. Thank you for your support at jvorse.org and enjoy the message today. Grab your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Luke chapter 7. We're continuing today through... Um, the book of Luke, and we're in part 12 of our Red Letter series. And uh, we're going to start in verse number 11, and I have entitled today's uh, message, Spiritual Disruption. Turn to your neighbor and say, Spiritual Disruption. How many of you have ever felt like that God just totally disrupted everything in your life? How many of you? Okay, I'll say what I said in the first service. I felt that way about a week after I got married. I mean, I'm like, I had all these plans. I thought, wow, this is going to be wonderful. This is be-. The problem is I married somebody that had thoughts and plans too, and they were a little bit different than what my thoughts and my plans were. And so uh, we get married, and, and uh, we're in the car, and we're driving down the road, and, and we'd just gotten married, and we'd just gotten through the reception, and we were tired, and we were headed to Gatlinburg. We were going to do honeymoon on a shoestring. You know, we didn't have very much. In fact, in fact, on the way there, we found a coupon at a rest area and we got a room for 11 bucks that had a waterbed. <laughs> so, so anyways, so we're driving down the road and, it, and it's getting late and we'd, we'd had the wedding and we'd had the reception and all of this, and it's getting late. And Donna turns and she looks at me with them big blue eyes and she says, now what's mine is mine and what's yours is mine. (laughs) I said, that's what you think. (laughs) Two weeks from today, we will have been married 29 years. And I found out that she was right. Amen. But my life was disrupted. Your life was disrupted. I mean, it's, it's, there are things that happen in our life that uh, disrupts our life. And so today, we're going to talk a little bit about spiritual disruption. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now. We thank you, Lord, that we can gather together around your word. We can learn from you. Thank you for the people that are here today to worship, to fellowship, and to, to touch you and to learn from your word. Holy Spirit, teach through me as we deliver the, the bread of life. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 11, the Bible says, And it came to pass the day after that he, speaking of Jesus, went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him, and much people. Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And much people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said unto her, Weep not. And he came, and he touched the bier, which is where the dead body was laid. And they that bare him stood still, and he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. And there came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying that a great prophet is risen up among us, and that God hath visited his people. 
And this rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea and throughout all the region round about. And the disciples of John showed him of all these things. Now we could go on and read down through verse 23, which is where we're going to try to get today. And we would discover that the Pharisees were once again in opposition to what Jesus did. Jesus was and is the central figure of all Christianity. And what that simply means is we can look at the life of Jesus and we can glean wisdom from His life on how to address the challenges that we face in our lives. Jesus being the central figure of all Christianity and the prime example, the divine example from heaven of how we should be and what we should do had to address these Pharisees and had to deal with them. I, w- I came across a quote uh, earlier this week. I was thinking to myself, I wonder if Jesus were to walk in in physical form into a church today, would He really be accepted? First of all, would He recognize His church? And secondly, would He be affected and then or, or accepted? And then I ran across this quote and I thought it was kind of fitting for this message and the quote was this. If Jesus would have preached the message that's coming out of most pulpits today in America, He probably would not have been crucified. I'm going to say that again. If Jesus would have preached the message that's coming out of most pulpits today in America, He probably would not have been crucified. Because they're preaching an easy gospel. They're preaching the pop psychology gospel. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then He gives us a key in the next verse where He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, if you're an avid Bible scholar, you will understand that that word yoke there is not talking about the yoke of like an oxen. Jesus was a fifth level level rabbi and the rabbinical teachings of a fifth level rabbi were called their yoke. And so what Jesus said was, take my yoke upon you and learn of me for my yoke is easy. My teachings are easy and my burden is light. Just because his teachings were easy and his burden was light did not mean that they didn't fly in the face of religion. In fact, you think I'm a hard preacher? You think other people that preach the Word of God are hard preachers? In fact, Donna and I were talking yesterday and I told her, I said, Honey, I said, when I stand and preach the Word of God, I said, there are people today in our politically correct society right here in America that would call me a bigot, that would call me a male chauvinist, that would, they have all these names for people who are just preaching what the Word of God says. So if we preach what the Word of God says and they call us a bigot, then they're calling God a bigot. And they're calling Him a chauvinist. You think we're tough? Jesus called the Pharisees snakes and vipers. He called them hypocrites. He stood toe to toe with the religious leaders of his day who were steeped in the immorality of the law because the law was supposed to, to, to promote morals, but they would speak one thing with their mouth, but their act 
actions were totally different. And so Jesus stood toe-to-toe with them and He called them vipers and He called them snakes and He called them hypocrites and things like that. Because they constantly opposed Him. They didn't want to accept Him for who He was. And so understanding that for three and a half years, Jesus had to deal with this. A lot of times He was opposed. And so we look at how He dealt with that. Let's uh, go back to verse number 11, and then we'll work our way down to that. The Bible said that Jesus is coming into a city called Nain. There was a widow whose son had died. Now, I want you to, I want you to kind of get a picture of this, because a widow whose only son had died had nowhere left to go. She was weeping. She was crying. Because when you're, when back then, there was not a political welfare system. The welfare system was the church. In fact, the Bible talks about take care of widows who are widows indeed. And when you study that out, it's not talking about everyone that's a widow. It's talking about everyone who is a widow, widow who had nothing left to them, who has absolutely no one to take care of them. And then there are requirements of those widows according to the Word of God. They are to hang around the church. They are to work around the ministry. And that's what they would do. These widows who had nowhere to go, their sons had died, their husband had died, they had no family that they could go to would come to the temple and they would work around the temple. They would clean, they would cook the meals, they would do whatever they needed to do. And in return, the priest would take care of these widows who were widows indeed. So she was either looking at possibly doing that or being one of the many beggars that was in the, in the community. So here she was and she was weeping and she was crying because her husband had died. So her welfare fell to her son. Well, then he dies, and he's her only son, so she has nowhere to go. She has no one to turn to. She has nothing left, and she's weeping, and she's crying because he died and because she's distraught. She doesn't know what to do. Jesus walks up, and he reaches up, and he touches the pallet where the dead body is laying called the beer, B-I-E-R. Jesus touches that pallet, And he looks at the widow and he says, weep not. That's all he said to her. Then he touches the pallet and he speaks to the dead man. And he says, young man, I say unto thee, arise. And the Bible said that he sat up and began to speak. Now here's the point that I want to make right here. And it's it's a little, uh, we're getting off track a little bit, but it's a point that needs to be made. Anytime God speaks to a dead area in your life to come alive, it has no choice but to come alive. What dreams have you allowed to die? What visions have you allowed to die? What has God put inside of you as a young man or a young woman? But as you've gotten older, life just happened. And it seems like that the can just kept getting kicked down the road and kicked down the road until all of a sudden you woke up one day and there's a lot more years behind you than there are before you. And you're saying to yourself, well, I might as well just give up on... No, 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 no. One word from God can change your life forever. One word from God can turn your situation around. God can speak to the dead areas in your life and He can tell them to live again. And They have no choice but to live again. So Jesus 
Here he is. He has compassion on her. He says, weep not. Then he commands her son to arise. And the Bible says that he sat up and he began to speak. And, they, and Jesus delivered him to his mother who had been weeping. Can you imagine the joy that must have filled her heart and must have filled her life? Because she received that which was dead back to life again. Then verse number 16, there came fear, a reverential, a reverential trust. There came fear on all of them, and they glorified God, saying that a great prophet is risen up among us, and that God had visited His people. And this rumor of Him went throughout, for throughout all Judea and throughout all the region round about. And then the Bible said the disciples of John the Baptist showed Him of all of these things. Now there's one more thing that I want to point out here. When Jesus spoke to this young man to come to life, Jesus did not beg God to raise him from the dead. He didn't lay his hand on that little pallet and say, Oh, Heavenly Father, I ask you right now in the name of Jesus, if it be your will, Jesus didn't do that. First of all, He knew it was God's will to raise Him from the dead. And secondly, Jesus was operating in authority. Let me tell you something. Now, now I'm going I'm to give you some good pastoral, spiritual, scriptural advice. Are you ready for this? When you get ready to lay hands on the sick, the praying needs to already be done. What do you mean by that, Pastor? Because when you lay hands on the sick, you should have already been in your prayer closet. Your relationship with God should have already been taken care of. Faith should have already risen in your house, in your, in your heart. When you lay hands on the sick, you're not there to beg God to do anything. Jesus already done it over 2,000 years ago at the whipping post. He secured your healing. He secured your salvation there at the whipping post. You are standing in a place of authority and instead of begging God to do something, you need to command through a divine authority that that sickness dies and that that body is made whole. That's how you take care of the devil that tries to bring sickness into your heart, sickness into your life, poverty into your heart, poverty into your life, that tries to wreck relationships, that tries to wreck your business. There is a place of authority, divine authority, where we stand as sons of God and heirs of God and join heirs with Jesus Christ, where when we step into that place, every demon in hell shakes and trembles and flees. Well, I just want to pray that if it be God's will, are you cheapening the sacrifice of Calvary? Think about this. Why would you cheapen the sacrifice of Calvary like that? Jesus didn't die for just a couple. He died for us all. And Jesus didn't give His back to the smiters for just a couple. He gave His back to the smiters for us all. And heaven has been waiting for 2,000 years for the church to step into her authority. So when Jesus, the central figure of all Christianity, the 
the divine example to the church, the head of the church, or the body of the church, the head of the church. So Jesus, when He stepped up to that pallet where that dead man was, He just reached up and spoke to the young man and told death to go and him to arise and live. Now, that same Jesus said to us, the works that I do, you can do and greater because I go to my Father who sends you another comforter, speaking of the Holy Spirit, and that comforter will be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And He said the comforter is the Spirit of truth. So He carried the Holy Spirit in Him. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world has not seen, and they cannot know Him because He dwells with you right now, but eventually He shall be in you. And what's in you will come out of you. Fast forward to the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and tongues of fire came down out of heaven and they were filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance. And then we spend the rest of the book of Acts looking at the exploits that the apostles did. They were living out the promise of the Father. So Jesus touches this little pallet. The Bible calls it in the King James Version a beer, a B-I-E-R. And He speaks to the young man. And He says to him, Young man, I say unto thee, arise. So then, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, he's in prison. He, he was the one that baptized Jesus. In fact, in, in the book of John, um, we find, in the book of St. John, we find where John the Baptist was baptizing Jesus, or baptizing believers, and Jesus come walking along the shore there by the river Jordan, and John looked up and he recognized him, and he said to those that were following him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which will take away the sin of the world. And he baptized him, and the Bible said that straightway when Jesus came up out of the water, there was uh, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove, and there was a voice that came out of heaven that said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. Fast forward just a little bit, and Herodias' daughter was dancing before the king there, and pleased the king. And the king says to her, I'll give you anything that you want. I'll give you anything that you want. And Herodias was very upset because John the Baptist had told her that she can't commit adultery with her brother-in-law, Philip. And so she wanted John the Baptist killed. And so she told her daughter, she said, come here, go tell him you want John the Baptist's head on a charger. In other words, that's like a plate. In other words, we want him killed. 
So that's why John the Baptist was in prison. So John the Baptist was in prison and he was on death row, having baptized the Son of God, having been the forerunner of Jesus, having been the babe that leaped in his mother's womb, Elizabeth, at six months old when Mary came to her cousin Elizabeth and told her that an angel had overshadowed her and that that which was conceived in her was of the Holy Ghost. And the Bible said that the baby that was in Elizabeth's womb leaped in her womb and was filled with the Holy Ghost from the womb. This was John the Baptist. So he became the forerunner of Jesus. He was out in the wilderness. He was wearing camel's hair. He was eating locusts and wild honey. He was prophesying, There cometh one after me who is preferred before me, whose shoe latches I am not worthy to bear. He that cometh after me, will, he said, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And so John has all these expectations of what's going to happen when Jesus comes into his ministry. John's in prison. And so John's probably thinking to himself, well, when Jesus really comes into his ministry and God starts manifesting through him, Jesus will come down here and he'll use the power that he has and he'll get me set free. And when that didn't happen... Doubts began to rise in this great prophet. So he gathers two of his disciples together and he says, I want you to go to Jesus. And I want you to ask him this question. And we see that in verses 19 through 23. He said, I want you to ask him this question. Are you the one that we are looking for or is there another? The response that Jesus had to that was a response of action. The Bible said that Jesus began to heal many that had infirmities. infirmities. Jesus began to cast out devils of many that were possessed. That Jesus began to heal many of them that were blind. I don't know that He healed all of them. It's some type of an indication there that He may not have for whatever reason. But the Bible said that Jesus did that for many of them. And then the Bible says in verse number 22, Then Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way and tell John what things you have seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached. And then in verse number 23 he says, And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. So basically what Jesus was saying to them was go back to John and tell them what we preached a week, a week or two ago. Tell them the proof is in the fruit. The proof is in the fruit. Now I want to pause right here and I want to encourage you with something. Never be offended when you meet someone for the first time that's a Christian, a credible Christian. And they're looking for fruit, for your fruit. The fruit of your life. A credible Christian is not going to hang around with gossipers and backbiters and church hoppers and people that cause division and people call, that cause strife, and people that cause confusion. A credible Christian 
is not going to have anything to do with people like that. And so when you get to know, the Bible said, know them which labor among you. It takes me a while to know whether I need to hook up with someone anymore. I've got to know them a while. And when I say a while, I'm not talking about a few months. I'm talking about it takes me a few years. The proof is in the fruit. You need to look at their fruit, the fruit of their life, the fruit of their ministry. What is their life producing? Are they producing a life that is pleasing to the Lord? And all of us are different. Our callings are different. Where we're at with God is, is different. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is what kind of fruit is their life producing? Hang around with people who are producing good fruit. The proof is in the fruit. And so what Jesus was saying is, I've known John the Baptist all of my life. John has known me all of my life. Our mothers are cousins. We've known each other for a long time. So this thing about getting to know each other, that's already been resolved a long time ago. My goodness, he's heard a voice from heaven that says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. So Jesus just goes into action and He just starts healing people and He starts setting people free and He starts opening blind eyes and He starts causing lame to walk and He's preaching the gospel to the poor. And then He tells John's two disciples, He said, you go back to John and you tell John all of these things is happening and He'll know that I'm the Messiah because the proof is in the fruit. So people who are authentic Christians, are attracted to other authentic Christians. And what I mean by that is real Christians. People who are fruit inspectors, people who are looking for the fruit, people who are, they are people who are after authentic moves of God. They're attracted to authentic moves of God. Now let me say this. Every church has a choice. Every single church has a choice. We have this choice. The churches down the street have this choice. The churches in the next county, in the next state, in different nations around, every single church has this choice. We're either going to be a feel-good society or we're going to be a community of faith and a community of worshipers. And we've got to make up our mind what we're doing. What are, what are we? The proof is in the fruit. I was praying for an individual at the end of the first service today. Never met him before in my entire life. God spoke to me while I was praying for him. And he said, I want you to pray that that which is in his body that needs to die will die. He opened his eyes, tears streaming down his face. He said, I have a brain tumor. I thought you had a brain tumor. Six or seven years ago, we had a Baptist couple attending this church. They brought their child up here for prayer. They hadn't been here very long. They've moved to a different state now, but they brought their child up here for prayer. And she was 12 years old, and she had a brain tumor that was about, it was about as round and long as a small pencil, about that long, and it ran along the side of her brain. And her mother brought pictures of the tumor and showed it to me 
And she said, you said that God can heal people. You believe in miracles. I said, yes, ma'am, I do. And we laid hands on that little girl and we prayed and we believed God. And what we did was we said, right now, in the name of Jesus, we take the authority authority that God has given us and we speak to that brain tumor and command it to die in the name of Jesus and we command her body to be made whole. About two weeks later, her mother came to church and she was a wreck. I mean, she was just... And she had papers in her hands and she was waving them like this. And she said, Pastor, I've got to show you something. I said, come on up here. I want you to show me this. She said, this is what I showed you two weeks ago. She said, this week my daughter went for another brain scan. Here is the brain scan from this week. It's gone. It's gone. What are you saying, Pastor? The proof is in the fruit. There are some churches that she would have went to where she would have went forward and asked them to pray for her and they would have said, well, the days of miracles are over. Wrong church. Amen. Wrong church. There are some churches you go to today and they'll tell you the days of speaking in tongues and prophecy and the demonstration of the Spirit of God is over. I want to tell you something. Wrong church. Amen. Well, it's right for me. No, it's not. It's not biblical. It's not biblical. No, 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 no. The proof is in the fruit. If you want to see God move, you've got to get around people that believe in God moving. And, and, and let me say it like this. If you want to see God move, you've got to get around people that have an appetite for the move of God. That have a desire to see God move. That's not a shame to let God shake them up one aisle and down the other. There's nothing wrong with the power of God coming down and flowing in the midst of God's people. And God shaking us and quaking us. That's fine. That's wonderful. You cannot be touched by the divine and elicit no response. When God touches you, when God changes you, when God transforms you, sickness dies, depression leaves, bondages are broken, the power of God comes on your life, and your life is changed and transformed. The proof is in the fruit. Jesus. <laughs> we got to make that choice. Jesus was giving them a choice. You can go with the Pharisees, and you can have the law and their old dead ways, or you can come over here with me and help me open this dispensation of grace as I teach you things pertaining to the kingdom of God, which is God's system and God's ways of doing things. It is a matter of life and death for some people where they go to church. Let me say it like this. It's a matter of life and death for some people who they fellowship with. You don't need to let just anybody in your inner circle. No, no, no. no. Okay, I've got to go. I've got to continue here. Whew. Makes me want to shout. Luke 7.23 Blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. So Jesus in verse number 23, He wraps this up and then He goes on 
And he talks to people after the messengers of, of John had departed. But in verse number 23, he says this, Blessed is he, happy is he, or empowered to prosper is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. So he told them, you go tell John, don't be offended because I'm not doing what he thought I would do. You go tell John, don't be offended because his idea of the move of God is not what God's idea was. Jesus was not what the current scholars of the day expected in the Messiah. They thought Jesus would come and deliver them from the Romans. In reality, the Romans crucified Jesus. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and all of them, they're like, well, if He's the Messiah, if He's the Son of God, if He's who He claims to be, if, that, if that's who He is, then how come He got crucified? Well, all they had to do was go look at the law that they were bound to to find out that there needed to be a lamb that would be slain from the foundation of the world that could enter one time into the holy place to obtain eternal redemption. I wonder what they felt like when, the, when Jesus cried, It is finished, and great darkness came across the land, and the earth quaked, and the rocks rent, and the graves of the saints were opened, and they walked through the streets of Jerusalem. That's what the Word of God says happened. Why were they walking through the streets of Jerusalem? Because God was transferring them from paradise to His presence. The door was open because of the blood. You see that? The door to heaven became open because of the blood. You could have bumped into Abraham that night. Walking through the streets of Jerusalem. Okay. You see, they thought Jesus would be born of royalty. They were offended because He wasn't born in a royal court, if they only knew. Jesus told them, He said, you can't be pleased. We'll, we'll, we'll touch that next week. But He said, you can't be pleased. He said, John came eating locusts and wild honey, camel's hair, living in the wilderness, and you said he had a devil. He said, I came wearing nice robes and eating and drinking with people, and you told me that I was a wine-bibber and a glutton. They can't be pleased. Does that sound familiar? It's a spirit, and it's still in the earth today. They thought Jesus would come wielding a sword. Instead, He came establishing grace, expanding things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Some of them were offended when they were encouraged to embrace Jesus as the Messiah that the prophets had foretold. Here's the thing I want us to understand, and then I'm going to share with you one thing that the Lord spoke to me this morning about 3.30, and I'll share with you how that came about, and then we'll be through. Rarely does Jesus do what we expect. A lot of times He'll do what we ask, but He usually does that and more. Rarely does Jesus do what we expect. He usually blows us away with something more. Now, let me ask this. How many times have we missed out on a move of God because we were expecting something totally different than what God was trying to do? I had someone in my office this past week, and I love this person dearly. 
But they were talking to me about, you know, we just need to have the, you know, in the 70s, we had six-week revivals and seven-week revivals and eight-week revivals and 12-week revivals. And people just came. I said, you can't get people out for three days in a row. Now, oh, they would come if we would just have these long revivals like that. People would come. I said, on due respect, the 70s was 45 years ago. I remember them. <laughs> I was a kid, but I remember them. I wrecked my bike in the 70s. I remember the 70s. I was called to preach in the 70s. I, I remember the 70s. I was a little boy, but I was called. And I looked at him and I said, in the 70s, you couldn't go home sit down in your lazy boy recliner, pick up a remote control, and just surf through Christian channels and just go to church in your chair. I said, that's why people came to church night after night after night because that's how they got their church. I said, times have changed. Sadly so. But times have changed. And so, when we face the reality of that, we have to ask ourselves, God, I know you haven't changed. I know that you still want to heal like you did. I know you still want to save like you did. I know you still want to pour out your glory like you did. I know you still want to manifest yourself like you did. God, I know you're a Holy Ghost man. I know it, I know it, I know it, I know it. Now, how are you going to do it in this generation? And instead of trying to recreate what we miss... We need to find out what God's trying to do now and just jump in with both feet. So, the worship team wears blue jeans now. And sometimes they got a little hat on. We didn't do that. We considered that disrespectful. Well, I don't think there's any place in the Bible where it says wearing a hat is disrespectful. In fact, there are places where the Bible kind of condones some of us wearing hats in worship, like a covering. We get hung up on the traditions of men, and a lot of times we shut out the generation. Here, here's the thing. God has a move for every single generation. And God is not getting rid of the move He had in the generation. He's before that. He's building on it. He's building on that generation. Jesus said it like this. He was sitting outside of the city of Jerusalem, probably on the Mount of Olives, and He was overlooking Jerusalem, and He cried out and He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks under my wings, but you would not. What He was saying was they had lost the day of their visitation. I don't want us to lose the day of our visitation. However God wants to move, Roger, I want to be in it. I want to be in it. He's not going to do this, but if God told me to get up here and preach in Bermuda shorts next Sunday and He would move, you guys would have to deal with my white legs. <laughs> Let your light so shine before men that they may see you. <laughs> Called to light up dark places. Anyway, we, there's a hundred of those. But 
What I'm saying is, God's not going to ask me to do that, but what I'm saying is, we just need to be that radical with it. God, whatever you want, that's what you get. You have me, God. You have my life. You have my will. I want you. I want your move. I want to see people give their life to Jesus like this young man did this morning, but I want to see more of that. There's too many lost people that pass by churches. There's too many lost people that walk past Christians every single day. There's too many lost people in the neighborhoods around our homes. We're living in a, pro, in a post-Christian society in America because the church has been silent too long. Are you hearing me? When we start demonstrating God's power, we start demonstrating God's anointing, and God starts flowing, and we catch on fire for God, then the community will come out to see us burn for Him. Hallelujah. And however God wants to ignite that fire, I'm with Him on it. So don't be offended when God wants to manifest Himself completely different from what is expected. Last night I was laying in my bed. Four hours I couldn't go to sleep. They came on about 3.30 in the morning. I finally... I mean, I was quoting Scripture, Lord, you said in your word, you give your beloved sleep. And I mean, I'm just all kinds of things. Finally, it dawned on me. Here I am quoting Scripture, but maybe God's got something He needs to say to me. Wish I would have thought of that three hours earlier. <laughs> but I said, God, what is it? And He said, you missed something in your outline that I want you to share this morning when you're talking to my people. I said, oh. And my phone and my iPad and my Mac and all that, they're all synced together so I can just update from anywhere. So I sat up on the edge of the bed, reached over, grabbed my iPhone. I pulled up the outline that I had been working on the last couple of days, which is this outline here, which I've got about halfway through this morning. I pulled up this outline and I, and, and I looked at it and I said, God, where is it? And he brought me right to this point where we are right now, where it talks about blessed is he who shall not be offended in me. And here's what the Lord spoke to me. He said, you've talked about how that they were not expecting me the way that I was. You've talked about how that they don't need to be offended when I move in the way that they don't expect. He said, but I want you to tell them this. They don't need to be ashamed of me either. And my mind immediately went to Luke 12, 9, where the Bible says, He that denieth me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. And the Lord spoke to me and He said, Tell them they need to wear my love like a badge of honor. Your love for Jesus... They need, you need to wear your love for Jesus like a badge of honor. So much so that there is no question in anyone's mind that we're devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. You see, God today is looking for devotion, Loyalty, which is faithfulness, 
and holiness. He wants us to be holy. In fact, He said to us, Be ye holy, for I am holy. We're talking about divine things here, church. We're not talking about the king of another nation or even the leader of another continent. We're talking about the king of creation. We're talking about God Almighty. Who do you think we're standing before? We can't frivolously, frivolously come into His presence. He'll accept us as we are. But we need to let His presence change us and move us from glory to glory so we can experience Him on planes that we didn't even know existed. There's a level in God that the church today has yet to attain. Sure, there are people around the world giving their life to Jesus by the hundreds of thousands, but I believe there's going to come a day when the power that was in the New Testament church upon Peter, when he would walk down the streets, and the Bible said that they brought the sick and those that was possessed with the devil, and they laid him laid him along the sidewalks, and the shadow of Peter passing over them caused sicknesses to go and demons to flee, and God was glorified. Now, now how, do you, how come you believe that, Pastor? Because the Bible said that the glory of the latter house will be greater than the glory of the former. So it's not just going to be Peter and Paul and James and Thomas and Bartholomew that's walking in that anointing. It's going to be the body of Christ globally that's walking in that anointing. And God will receive glory from the north, the south, the east and the west, all around the world. A global move of God like the world has never seen. Not something that was manufactured from six strings on a guitar. Not something that was manufactured from the Trumpet, trumpeting from someone's mouth, but it's going to be an authentic outpouring from heaven itself as God thrust His sickle into the harvest, the last day harvest of the church, and reaps His bride. Hallelujah. I'm so hungry for this. I'm so hungry for the move of God. I'm so hungry for the outpouring of the Spirit of God. And I've been praying and fasting and asking God, God, give Lakewood that same passion. Give us that same hunger. Give us that same desire. God did not destine us to just be a church of 100 or 150 or 200 people that has minimal impact. God has destined us to be a beacon of hope and a beacon of light and a place where we are a conduit of the last day outpouring of the Spirit of God. I'm a Holy Ghost filled man and I'm going to pastor a Holy Ghost filled church. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. 
So I'm not ashamed of Jesus. I'm not ashamed of the move of God. I'm not ashamed of the fact that miracles still happen. I'm not ashamed of the fact that the anointing comes on people for them to prophesy. I'm not ashamed of the fact that there are gifts of the Spirit that are in operation of the church. I'm not ashamed of Him because if we're ashamed of Him before men, He'll be ashamed of us before the angels in the presence of our Heavenly Father. Hallelujah. Let them call me what they want to. They can't do anything worse to me than they did to Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I have to stop, but come, Mark. Hallelujah. Let's just bow our heads and close our eyes. A move of God. A move of God begins with us praying prayers like, Search my heart, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. It begins with us praying prayers like David prayed when he said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The passion of God's heart is relationship. Anything that gets in the way of that relationship hurts Him. It's offensive to Him. When David prayed that prayer, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. He was already the king of Israel. He had committed adultery. He had ordered the death of someone. His son that was to be born was dying and the king finds himself laying face down on the floor sackcloth and ashes crying create in me a clean heart O God and then he said this renew a right spirit within me. That renew word means that he had had a right spirit before. Clean hands and pure hearts produce right spirits. Clean hands and pure hearts produce right spirits. When he cried, renew a right spirit within me, his mind had to travel back to the hills of Bethlehem, Judea. 
when he was a shepherd boy strumming his heart. A few years later, he was standing before Saul, who was the king. And there was a giant by the name of Goliath that was out there defying the armies of the living God. David said, I want to go fight him. Saul said, try my armor on. He put it on, it wouldn't work. David said, I can't use it. I haven't tried it. I haven't proved it. I just need my sling and some stones and the Spirit of the Lord. Saul said, you're going to get killed. And David said, no. He said, when I was out there on the hills of Bethlehem, Judea, tending sheep, a lion came up. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon me. And I slew that lion. He said, a bear came up and the Spirit of the Lord came upon me and I slew that bear. And he said, the same God that delivered the sheep from the lion and the bear will deliver us from this uncircumcised Philistine who defiles the army, defies the armies of the living God. So he loaded up the weapon that he had that was tried and proven. And he ran toward the giant. And the giant laughed and giggled and threw his spear way too early. David dodges the spear, lets the sling go. As he's declaring the word of the Lord running toward that giant, he said, you come to me with a sword and a spear, but I come to you in the name of the, of the God of the armies of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And that stone left, and God guided that stone. It hit the giant right between in the forehead, knocked him down, stunned him. David went, took the giant's own sword, cut off his head, picked up his sword, the Bible, sword, the Bible, or his head, and the Bible said that he stood upon the giant, lifted up that head and showed the enemy this is what God can do to those who defy the armies of the living God. Years later, he's laying face down having committed adultery, having ordered the death of someone and his cry is make me new again, God. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. You know what God did? He did it. He did it. In fact, He did it so much that David now is known in Scripture as the man after God's own heart. The one who knew God, the Spirit of God came upon him. God used him. And then he faltered. He fell away. He committed adultery. He committed murder. And then God recreated a new heart in him and called it, called him a man after my own heart. Don't tell me that God can't give you another chance. Some, somebody said to me, they said, well, he's the God of the second chance. I said, yes, and the third chance, and the fourth chance, and the fifth chance, and the sixth chance, and the seventh chance, and the eighth chance. 
Are you getting the picture? And the night, listen, He's not giving up on you if you won't give up on Him. So if you're here today, you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, or maybe you're like David. Maybe there was a time in your life where you were close to God and you knew God and you experienced the move of God, but life happened and somehow you just wandered away. Well, I want to tell you something. God's not went anywhere. He's right there where you left Him with arms open wide. Those of you that are watching online, this message is for you too. If you need to give your life to Christ or you need to rededicate your life to Christ, I just want you to pray with me right now. Just say, Dear Lord Jesus, I ask you to come into my life. I ask you to forgive me of my sins, my faults and my failures. I believe you're the Son of God. I receive you into my life as the Lord of my life. I thank you for making me a Christian. In Jesus' name. Now I want you right now where, where you're at. Let's all just stand where you're at. Just stand. Thank you for listening to Dr. Jonathan Vorse on Working the Word. We appreciate your love and support. Visit www.jvorse.org to give a gift today. Don't forget to subscribe and enjoy the rest of your day. Always remember, the Word will work if you work the Word. Be blessed.